I think being founders just got so romanticized over the last few years. And in reality, it's just like, it's like a very difficult life. <laughs> it's very stressful and it challenges you. I don't think it's for everyone. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to world-class investors and Olympic champions, you will learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. In today's episode, we're joined by Marsha Bucha, the founder and general partner of Day One Ventures. The firm invests in pre-seed and seed companies ranging from fintech and Web3 to AI, quantum, B2B, and consumer platform. The team's investments include Remote, Superhuman, WorldCoin, and Yumi, to name a few. With a background in communications and PR, Marsha is pioneering a new model in VC by spearheading public relations for Day One Ventures portfolio companies. I am really excited to learn more about Marsha's background and her journey with Day One Ventures to date. So a big welcome to 40 Minute Mental, Marsha. How are you? Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me on your podcast, James. I'm doing really well. And you? Good. Yeah, very well. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Really excited to to learn about your your amazing career and experience in investing. So, But before we dive into all of that, we'll do some quick fire questions to get you warmed up. So if you don't mind, can you finish the following sentences after me? Question one, the deal I am most proud of is? Worldcon. Okay, and why? Uh, just because I met founders before they started company and in some ways played a role in bringing one of them to Silicon Valley. Not to mention 120x return in three years, which is quite good compared to other investments we made. Yeah, that definitely helps. That's very understandable. The second question, I wish I would have invested in. That's a great question. I don't have an immediate answer. I don't like them. I don't think there's like a company that became obvious winners that I didn't notice. I wish I would have invested in Facebook, but the time they were raising seed round, I was probably 10 years old, so didn't have a chance. Yeah, fair enough. It's, sometimes it's good to look forward and not have any regrets about things that passed up. I'm sure there'll be uh, there'll be many investments you've made that others wish they could have done too. A myth I'd like to bust about VC is? I think um, there is a myth that VC is having like this like predatory set and just all about money. And I think actually the majority of VCs I know, they're very much pro-founders. And they genuinely care about founders. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely say that's the case in, in my experience as well. And I'm hoping through this episode and others, we can help really showcase that because it's, uh, you know, it's such an important part of the role. And the hardest part of being a VC is? I think it's just being very patient. And it comes down to every single aspect of doing VC. It comes down to betting on a company and waiting for a fairly long period of time and it takes off. It comes down to waiting for your own returns to come, even if your performance is amazing. It comes down to fundraising for your first few funds. It comes down to finding the right team because apparently not all the talented people and not all operators could make it into a good investor. 
just comes down to every aspect. I think patience is the biggest thing that being VC and being in VC trains you. So if you're not very patient, it might be like a good career for you. And I like to say, second part, I like to say is that if you're not ready to commit to VC for at least 10 years, there's like, it's just not worth trying because you're not going to experience what it means. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably why I think I'm not a VC. I mean, there's lots of reasons why I'm not. I don't really have the skill set, I think, but also I'm not patient at all. So it's definitely the thing my wife uh, complains about the most about me. <laughs> Final question. The one thing I'd like to change about VC is? I think just like one thing about VC that's really sad is that like we all see, we like make so many fun-driven decisions and that's kind of like how entire industry is rolling and i wish it was less common we see and that's like something that just makes this industry worse than it is yeah no thank you very much for sharing well we've already got a, a little glimpse into how you think about things Marsha. but i'm, I'm really excited to Maybe. hit all about day one ventures but before we dive into that i hope you don't mind i'd love to learn a bit more about your upbringing and you know, what was that like and what were your aspirations when you were growing up? I think um, when I was like, my father's first career is space engineer who turned into finance person. And my mother is school teacher, uh, literature teacher, turned into entrepreneur, turned to psychologist. So I think all aspects of that could be <laughs> something that's useful for VC. I think I was always like a little bit of rebel and for me as a way to earn my independence early on was to like be really extremely good in everything I do in school. And I also at some point just started liking it. And because of that, in a very young age, I started competing on national Olympics of all kinds, ranging from physics, math, geography, biology, to history, uh, science about society and uh, languages, and kind of like learn how to win them on a couple of examples. And my mom was teacher in my school and my class. So one time she brought me to language Olympiad and she said, I was like 12 or 13, I think 12 at that time. And she said, if you don't win your city Olympiad, I would never give you a grade. I said, okay, and I won. And after that, I just learned how to win. So I think this is something that's been useful for me in life. I think it just made me like fairly competitive. And you just like find this way to win and then you apply it to different aspects. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great, particularly in the industry you're in, having that competitive edge is definitely beneficial you started your career in pr and communications and you know had a really successful time in that industry i'd love to learn a a bit more about your time in the industry why you chose that and and a bit about your track record there and i guess on the flip side it would also be great to know how alongside that you started to get into angel investing and why you did when you did yeah i started like fairly early i was very young active in my youth and was activist and at around the age of 18, 19, it was a rise of social networks and the social networks network Twitter suddenly started becoming really big and I actually had TV show at that time 
and it was live journal and it felt like lots of bloggers on live journal were already popular so when i started writing for live journal i just felt like the space is already occupied and then twitter appeared and i started using it and it started becoming more and more popular so at the age of 18 me and few of my friends got kind of experienced and like using twitter and getting viral on twitter and we got lots of celebrities entrepreneurs companies that started coming to us and asking hey how can i be using twitter for my business or for myself and it grew into a social media agency of almost 100 people in less than half a year and it was great i had four co-founders which was a bit messy but business was thriving and in around like a year from there, I met this entrepreneur, Serge Bell, on Twitter. And we started talking about something. I remember I was quite sarcastic. So Serge already started three multi-billion companies, including Paradox and the Cronus, but I had a bit more followers on Twitter, maybe 10 times more. So he started talking to me. And in the next three months, we met. And in the next three months, he was literally convincing me every single day to come join him and help his venture capital fund and his initiatives with quantum technologies. And he sent me to Harvard. I met a few amazing scientists working in quantum field and startups. And he kept convincing and I ended up quitting my own company that I created, leaving it for my co-founders and joining his venture capital fund called Rune Capital. And it was 2010. And that's how my journey VC started. My role was head of comms, but in reality, it was a really small team. I think it was seven people at that time five partners and two non-partners so it was like a very flat structure so i had a chance to touch every single aspect of the way how vc firm was operating but i think in some ways i was leading platform teams so my role was to help our portfolio companies to grow as fast as possible it was also amazing and fascinating time learning from founder of three multi-billion dollar companies i think in 2010 it was probably a bit over 100 companies that grew over a billion in value and Serge founded two of them and we worked really closely and we became really good friends and I could just like see how he does things and I think he created the way how it just created like the way how I see strong founder and I learned the bites from them I like to call him my business dad and it was five years working with him first at Runa Capital and later at his cyber protection company Acronis, which I joined as head of comms and marketing, which was like already a big company, almost thousand people, 30 plus offices in 30 countries, etc. It was great experience. So that was like, it was the only time when I worked for someone. And once I left Acronis in five years after I started working with Surge, I started getting so many inquiries from different companies about PR and doing PR for them. And I kind of like was just like receptive and really see people need my help. So I started taking some client as a consultant and which very quickly grew into a small PR studio, which never been more than 10 people, but which in less than three years grew to over eight figures in revenue with very, very high margin and didn't have co-founders for that. And out of 30 clients I took in 2014, 15, in the next three years out of 30 clients I took, 10 became a unicorn, so including House, Hotel Tonight, Get, Top Tell, WeWork, and a few more. I was just like wondering, okay, that's great. I'm in my mid-20s, and my company has eight figures revenue. 
I wouldn't say it's a calling, but it was really great business money-wise. But on the same time, people I work with on a daily basis and who I help with so many more aspects than PR, including like fundraising and recruiting the best people and so sort of like connecting them and helping them with BD. They're now running multi-billion companies and I would have done even better if I was shareholder in every of the clients that I've been representing. It would probably be one more zero to the money I was able to make at the time. So in 2016, 17, I decided to experiment. I put some money aside. I was like very much, just had a lot of savings, to be honest. I put very small chunk of this money and decided to try a few angel investments, a bit over a dozen. And that ended up being like 11x DPI, 15x DPI, and it's still growing. I believe it could easily be 20 activity even more. And right now, so majority of that is already realized back to companies like Tribute, back to companies like Filecoin, and a few more. That was my first try in uh, Angel. And uh, after a year, Leon Kauf testing it, I realized this niche, which you invest in early stage company and helping this company free of charge with the communications and PRs and news that's not occupied by anyone. That is also something that's very much needed that as a founder, you want someone who is your shareholder and who has skin as a game to be helping you on this aspect. And it's completely like the ocean. No one been doing that at the time. So I decided to grow it into the fund. So I put some of my money and I got my first LPs, mostly tech founders who worked with me before and created the fund Day One Ventures in 2018. What a story. I love the, the kind of the evolution of, uh, of your sort of your investing journey and getting to that point. You're clearly naturally very gifted at backing founders and, and picking the right ideas. Can you share a bit more about what you decided to set up Day One Ventures in, in 2018? How did you define your investment thesis? Clearly, there was going to be this this unique aspect of your experience around PR and comms. But how did you define that? And tell us a bit about the early couple of years of the fund. How did it go? I think uh, I've been doing the same thing for the last like 15 years, just meeting talented people early on and trusting my own gut and intuition in terms of like betting on them and getting involved with them. And as simple as that, I just keep doing this. In the year when I was starting the fund, something inspired me a lot. I met Jim Bezos and I read a lot about him before. I heard about him and we had some conversations and I got this idea about day one company, companies that lives every day like it's day one, got really deep in me. And I was thinking about it and customer obsession is a core of day one company. So I started consciously and consciously looking for customer obsession in every company that I would bet. And you really learn, just do it like in a very simple way. Just listen how founder speak about the company and founders speak about the company and you see how, what is present in their language. Like, is it about money for them only? Is it about some personal complexes, is it about fame, or is they actually genuinely care about customers, think about customers, make decisions based on the customer's interests, have a lot of customer empathy, not only, but also have infrastructure and ways to receive customer feedback. 
put it into some product decision, implement and make it as a North Star of the company strategy. So it's been really interesting to reflect on that and I keep doing this and now almost six years and I can totally say that customer obsession is something that's definitely defined best companies that I ever backed. That's so interesting. That's, that's a really, really good to hear and I'm sure it'll be beneficial to any founders listening to this that one day might want to pitch to you. Clearly, there've been a lot of highlights and you've backed some incredible, uh, incredible businesses. I guess before we talk about some more of those highlights, what have been the hardest parts in the journey? What have been the challenges of building your own fund and kind of, I guess, learning to be a VC? It's not something that you originally trained for. So what have been the harder parts of the journey? I think uh, two things. Uh, one thing I already highlighted is just patience. It's not something that I naturally have and something that is absolutely needed. And I wouldn't create anything if I didn't challenge myself to develop this quality. And I think second part is just like not listening to anyone, just listening to yourself and your own gut feel more than to any external feedback. Because as especially when you earn in VC and you have a very little track record and still like in a very young age, I started my son in my mid-20s, you sometimes want to listen to people who have thrown the track record or supposed to be more experienced than all my not amazing investments. I don't say we lost money, but for VC, if you did two acts in a year, it's also failure, right? It's just all came through this kind of like more senior partners, advisors, mentors, inspirations who told me, well, this is an amazing company, you have to back it. And then I'm like, okay, like, let me put 100K, 200K, kind of like low conviction decisions that didn't really lead anywhere. Amazing. So, yeah, really interesting. Thank you for being honest, because I think it's good to talk about the some of the harder bits. Just coming back to how you make decisions and actually the sorts of investments you make, what are the typical check sizes? What types of firms do you, you tend to back? I know we've a former 40-minute mentor, Jog Van Der Voort, you, you backed remote and as a n- number of other big brands. But for anyone that's listening, thinking, I'd love Marsha to invest in me, what is it you tend to look for? How, and how do you go about supporting those founders from a deal size, but also broader perspective? Yeah, I think we do investments between 500 and 1.5 million for the first check up to, maybe like more or less up to 5 million, sometimes more full-on check. We love to come in on VC than seed and trying to come in as early as possible in an ideal scenario to be the very first check. We invest in companies and we leave their communications free of charge, doing all the work from messaging to strategy to executing on media strategy and securing publications and top tier media outlets, no matter how early company is. What do I look into founders? I think it's just amazing, like just like very different founders. I think there is no way to trick me into investment. I think it starts like very instantly. I have to really get interested in the founder to start doing diligence. As we do diligence, we do listen a lot and we do listen a lot to find out if there is any signs of customer accession in the culture. We also look 
in the culture overall, we look how people do business, how they manage companies, how they manage team, what relationship they have with the founders, how with each other they have with the team, they have with partners. This is very important for us. I think we, in addition to product market team, we always stand doing diligence on company culture because I think that's what define top companies in the world from just great companies, just outstanding culture. And we also do a lot of reference check. We talk to a lot of people sometimes like over 10 different contexts before making an investment. Love that. Yeah, it just goes to show the importance of culture, doing your due diligence. And as you said, customer obsession, I love the focus on that. And uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, you've got a try and interested technique to assess uh, and pick the right the right founders. I guess it's been a difficult climate the past year, you know, for raising. We've definitely seen this over here in the UK, but but more broadly, um, it's been hard. So do you mind sharing some tips for anyone that might be finding it hard right now, raising their first first check or second check? What tips do you have for any founders listening on that front? And are there any do's or don'ts or, or red flags that kind of they can learn from that you've sort of, that you've used as you're assessing pitches and seeing opportunities? Well, I think for early stage founders, great ideas and great founders start still find financing. And I think despite of the climate, there is still, I think last year was like 200 billion capital rate raised by this year or more than that. So there is a lot of money for early stage, even more. I think right now with economic instability, multi-stage firms like A16Z or General Catalyst and so on, they were not sure about writing late stage or PIPO checks just because we don't yet understand the market timing. But they refocused and started putting so much more money to work into earlier stages. So I would say, I wouldn't say it was like gigantic shortage on capital for early stage for great ideas. So if it's really hard to raise money, it's probably not a great idea. Just ask people why they don't want to back it and ask better ask VCs on some professional investors. And that's very honest opinion because very often people pass and they just share some bullshit, which is not true. And find out what the reasons. Maybe there is too much competition. If you create an asset generator AI company, maybe there is some too much competition. Maybe there is something in founders dynamic. So just just go back into what you're building to find out about the reasons. And building great companies like 10 years of your life. Even if we live very long life, right? It's probably one chance of your life. It's such a big chunk of your life. You should think a lot about before starting the company and going after ideas and also understand the reason that drives you. And if the reason is anything else than just desire to help customers, if you're not ready to make it work no matter what, it might be that being founder is not the best journey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's absolutely okay. I think it's uh, it's important to be honest about that. I think being founders just got so romanticized over the last few years. And in reality, it's just like, it's like a very difficult life. <laughs> it's very stressful and it challenges you. I don't think it's for everyone. I think becoming a founder has become like being like, I don't know, actor or singer because so many like <laughs> millions of people trying it. But I think so many of these people would have been much happier doing something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is one of the reasons we really want to be very honest about what founder life entails on this podcast, because, you know, it is so glamorized that 
I think it sometimes just lures people in that really haven't done the the due diligence on it. And often it's just not right for them. And that's absolutely fine. No, so thank you for sharing that, Marsha. For those really good founders who have got a great idea, but are not nailing the pitch, have you got any tips there about what it is that maybe turns a good pitch to a great one? And are there any examples of just where somebody has maybe not nailed it initially, but maybe has come back to, to convince you later on? Speaking about the pitch, I think it's like one way to pitch is just practice. And practice, be very reflective, see what works and just keep going, you know? I think it's the very best. I think it should just be clear. And I think clarity comes from clearly understanding for yourself why you're doing this company. And I think so many founders missing it. And I think clarity and just having it like clear, concise and logical, it sounds very basic and there is no rocket science. And I think clarity comes from like, just good understanding what you're working on. I don't know. I think people who meditate usually speak more clear because they think more clear. Maybe that's a way to get to a good pitch. I also think that it's not just narrative because people love choking stand and thinking that having charisma is only about like how you speak and what you speak. But at the same time, you meet so many immigrant founders who, for whom English is not their first language and who are not the best with the words, but there is like so much energy and pull through and body language and their conviction and good investors actually see it right away and they don't get distracted by them not having a great grammar in English, right? So I think you shouldn't like really extend on like what you say and trying to rehearse it. I think it's just like being yourself as you pitch and being like trying to be very genuine with every word that you say. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And as we look ahead to 2024 and beyond, what sectors are you most excited about? Where do you as an investor feel the biggest opportunities lie for you and day one ventures? I think we're really good in few sectors. I think we're really good at FinTech, we're really good in AI and we're really good in enterprise software. Sectors that makes me very curious is I call it like broadly, I call it future of human. And I put all kinds of companies in this category from using AI for bias that's related to humans and things like fringe bar and to future of reproduction to longevity. I want to explore this area. I have a game plan how I can explore it. I think some of the most important companies in our time would be created in this field. One of the thoughts that I had recently that future of consumers longevity, I think human body is so unique and I think amount of resources that we would be investing in making it better would be endless. I don't think you can ever get too healthy. I don't think you can ever get too happy. You always want more as you get into this path. And I think it's just good if we start spending on that more. Love that. Thank you, Masha. So many exciting areas to explore here. You mentioned earlier about how important culture is. And as a headhunter, I back that up 100%. Uh, often the best companies that we work with have incredible cultures, all very different, but are really known for it. So I'd love to learn just a, a little bit about the culture in Day One Ventures. Um, how have you built that? Do you mind telling us a bit more about the team you have and what makes it a unique place to work? Yes, I think it really comes from my own culture and there are three things that's most important for me. Love, freedom and truth. 
And I try to leave all those values. I also try to make it easy and almost playful to be able to leave all of them together at the same time. And I think day one ventures culture is every one company culture is like very reflective of my own. I think really try to make sure that we have high conviction around everyone we partner with on founder side or on LP side that we love what we do, we love founders we work with. We're very committed to be very much pro founder firm. And it is really unique because what I would do for founders is very genuine. And it's more like a life mission than our way of making money. And whatever is happening, we would always follow in the interest of the founder. And this also helped us to build very long lasting relationships. So most of like current fund LPs, they've been with us for like more than five years. So many people were back, you know, for five or 10 years. I really into having a very long relationship for the third fund. I have this model that I want every LP who's in be partner with them for the next 20 years. And same about founders. I want to pick people who I would want to work with for the next 20 years. And it's fairly easy for me to say because I'm surrounded on a daily basis by so many people I've known more than 10 years. I think we very much into doing things very fast and being very logical. We don't go back and forth in our decision. We always like move forward. And I think speed is a very big criteria. And I think speed is something that's like so important when we see uh, just speed and decisiveness. And I think the way to develop speed is actually let go of anything that makes you lacking confidence. I think uh, the more sure you are about yourself, the more you trust your intuition and God, the speedier you are, because in most of the cases, you slow down when you're unsure, and then you procrastinate, you delay decision. And I think another thing is just like, everyone in the team is very hardworking. I try to make sure that everyone in the team really loves their job. We remote, and I never worried about that. Any of my colleagues is like doing hard work. I actually like the one who always have to remind them like to take time off or to take vacation, to recharge. And just we're all like super dedicated and probably like work is really in the center for every one of us is work is in the center of our life. It's very open, like we communicate a lot and we talk a lot and we try to be very open and very reflective and think it's an environment when you can share your reflection freely in a very safe manner. So things like that. It's also very international. I think a small team is like originally like, I think we have a lot of like immigrants as the first generation, second generation. And I think overall firm, very small firm, I came originally from like six different countries, which is very cool. I think we all like different national, like our parents like different nationalities and races. And I really enjoy it. And I feel the most home with you are, a part of multicultural environment. Yeah, that sounds very similar to our uh, JBM setup as well, with lots of different nationalities, and it does make for a you know an amazing, amazing place to to work. And you know, different perspectives are so important. Uh, thank you, Marsha. Before we get to our wrap up questions, I'd love just to pick your brain. You are a real expert when it comes to PR and comms. You obviously built a very successful business, and now this is a, a sort of superpower of day one ventures. I guess in terms of how you support founders with that, I'm sure there's lots of different things you could do, but what do you think for anyone that might be a bit skeptical about the PR or comm side of things, what are the biggest benefits 
for your founders of the work you do? And, and, and are there any examples just for somebody that's maybe never worked on this side of things before about, you know, some examples of how it can benefit you as a founder? I think the biggest value is really that you sharing about your company, what you're building and how you're building help you to attract the right people and the right people is something that's absolutely essential for building great company. I think recruiting the best talent is the best value from PR on early stage that you can ever get. And it's really hard for great professionals to to join early stage companies. It's a big lab decision that's affiliated with a lot of risk. And you have to be tolerant to that. But the faster you attract the right people, the faster you're going to grow, the faster you're going to scale. So PR helps with that. I think second is definitely customers because it helps customers to get more trust in you. And you just keep reminding customers that they can potentially partner with you and does help with customers and first revenue. And the third is it does help with investors because investors look for signs of traction and media exposure and some additional stamp of approval and credibility in the media is something that make VCs to at least take a meeting with you and respond on email and keep considering your opportunity. So it's like mostly these three things. I also think it is like one psychological thing, especially for the first time founders, you have this like big vision and it's only exists in your head and maybe there's like a couple of people around you who are crazy enough to believe this vision, but it's like so not real. You're about to build this product, but product is not existing. You speak about this customers, but customers is just like getting on board and thinking about you. So it's kind of like, feels like you're just dreaming, right? And then you start seeing media that's writing about you and the story becomes more real. So I saw it many times and lots of founders, which I worked with when once like they see a story about them written, first of all, they better understand what they after was they're building because some external eye looking at their company and writing about that helps them like better understand what they're up to. And second, they just get a bit more conviction around what they're building. But because once stories are on and people are coming and people are interested, it's all becoming more real. You're almost like getting a bit more commitment because you sort of like publicly promise that you're going to do this. But on the same time, you see, oh, well, it's not just my dream and my crazy head. It's also external world see it and want it. So it does really help founders psychologically to be gaining more conviction around their project. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And for those who you'll have seen the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to PR, um, for anyone that's embarking on this journey, are there common mistakes that people make or founders make when they kind of go into this and things that they should maybe be thinking about, particularly if they're you know working on building their, their personal and employer brand? Yeah, I think... Uh, Bad mistake is hiring expensive or mid-expensive PR agency early on because it's not enough work to occupy them. It usually doesn't work well without internal communication leader. I think if you're very early, you either do PR yourself or you come for day one. So day one, walk you through the process and do it with as little effort as possible and with guaranteed result because we have aligned incentives and we don't charge anything for that and we only benefit if we do a really great job and help company grow. I think there's like only bad options and working with day one earlier would be hiring someone in-house and it's usually just very premature. I think a good time for in-house hire series B, in some cases series A, but really series B or series C. So hiring PR agency in 90% of cases end up being disappointed, burning lots of money because it takes some time 
to get up to speed and then good agencies take at least six months contracts and then like you pay like for six months you get this like two three publications or something that you've heard about bunch of random links and media that you've never heard about huge reports for like dozens of pages and you just like get burned forever because it's been such a big chunk of your budget so instead of doing this just better like going to either and dm find tech French reporter that's the right one and just dm them and ask like for intro you know or just ask like you another friend who got article recently and ask them to introduce this reporter just just to chat right without like demanding article in return it would be a much better experience i very much not big fan of pr agencies in this industry i think too many of them and sadly there are some good ones but sadly 80 percent of them are not that great not very transparent and they take in like more clients that they can process and they don't have actual relationship with reporters. Most importantly, their pitches not coming from the place of understanding business. They are not taking, we're doing like 100 plus hours of diligence before taking company on board and investing money. No one of PR agencies doing any diligence. They haven't even seen. Most of PR agencies take a client without even seeing their pitch deck. Or maybe they saw pitch deck, but they don't know any facts. So how would they introduce someone trustworthy to PR agents to reporters by accident so i think if this industry like very outdated would probably be replaced by ai or would just disappear because i don't think it's very expensive but it doesn't bring as much value as it should for the money that people are paying for pr agencies it's very valuable insights for someone that really knows what they're talking about so thank you for that i guess linked to that personal brands is becoming a you know a very hot topic some great founders have built really big personal brands they leverage that to really good effect just from your perspective you know as somebody that's worked in pr and comms a lot and has also backed many great founders how important is it for founders listening to this maybe starting their journey to invest in that personal brand do you have any thoughts on that particular topic yeah personal brand sounds very heavy and no one has time or money for that but i think what you can do you could just Find a platform that's the most resonate with you, X or Instagram or LinkedIn. If you don't know which one you like, probably X or former Twitter is the best one. And just start sharing what you're up to. And I would suggest to start sharing like more than less. You have to build it in the habits. So between the time you think, oh, I should tweet it and you actually tweeting it, it shouldn't be a moment when you have doubt. You should just like make it a habit that you do it without overanalyzing like, What's going to be the outcome? What people would think you should just do a lot of tweeting as the first like few months, and then you'll start doing it automatically. It definitely helps because people get to know you. I think the hardest part that people struggling all over the world is just being themselves, not only on acts, but just in their everyday lives, because we got so conscious about feedback loop and every single system that's built right now, like Twitter shows like how many likes or how many people saw it right you see counts like you order like i don't know uber like uber gives you rating like you get rated like all the time so it's very hard to disconnect from external opinion about you and just share what you want to share just share what you feel like right so the more your social network looks like as a personal diary right just the better it gets 
you don't have to be like very conscious about it and all best like most viral posts i've done i was just kind of writing it for myself it was almost like something i wrote for my own notes and for the future and i just put it out just to not forget that it exists to be able to reread it to be able to find it somewhere i think this kind of content is really the best and very basic thing to say but i think all platform right now missing authenticity i would actually be it would be fun to live in the world where all social media platforms for some reason just shut down any like count for like a year and just to see what kind of content it could still be algorithm pushing out whatever is interesting but i would just imagine like what would happen if all major social networks shut down the account and we will see how people can express themselves and how much more free they are as they're doing it. Yeah, wow, that's, that would be an interesting experiment. Uh, and yeah, I love your points there as somebody that has worked quite a lot and invested quite a lot on, in per, building my own personal brand. It's not something I was very comfortable with, to be honest with you. But as you said, you've got to build the habit and then you've just got to be authentic and speak from a place of your truth and your experience. And that's sort of, for me, it's been quite powerful. And I know for but a lot of- But I really of- hate saying like, build your personal brand i like to replace it with words just like being yourself or doing what you like and yeah exactly it's just that there doesn't need to be a label attached to it i think it's as much about showing who you are and the business you're building and your passion for it and why you're solving this problem i think if you can get that across that's incredibly compelling not just to investors and customers but also to talent and as you said finding talent is often one of the hardest things to do so if it's another tool to attract that that's a really good and powerful thing i'd say thank you so much marsha we're at our final quick three wrap-up questions really enjoyed hearing your uh, story it's been really really interesting but we're recording this at the start of january 24 it's a time for reflection what final piece of life and career advice would you leave our listeners with I think trust and intuition is something that everyone can enhance in. I think in general, like everyone is very smart and creative. And I think we all have this like voice in our head that we learn to not listen because voices around us was louder. And I think all worst things and mistakes in our life happen from listening to these external voices. So I think learning how to hear your own voice and trying to follow it and you don't have to like make magic commitments you just watch yourself doing it every single second as you leave it's probably something that could be good career and personal advice equally good career and personal advice very true definitely and what are you most excited about in 2024 i'm actually very hopeful that world will come to peace and i think it's not job of politicians to bring us to peace i think all of us as we see conflict happening have a choice between getting involved and escalate this conflict. I think we also just like, I feel like there is so much tension in here and people fighting all the time on like bigger scale, on smaller scale. I do think micro affect macro. And I think whenever you have a choice between de-escalating on your personal choices, right? And choosing collaboration versus conflict, I think this is your contribution for world peace. I'm very hopeful and I do think technology and I do think what tech entrepreneurs are doing is a good force and something that's working towards bringing the world to more peaceful environment. I think some solutions, for example, hydrogen companies working on hydrogen energy is something that can 
de-escalate this demand for new sources of energy that exist in the world as it drives lots of wars because causes of wars are always most very, very, I mean, so many cases just economical, right? And I do think if we achieve peace this time, it would be definitely with the help of tech entrepreneurs and very hopeful for peace for this year. Yeah, I, I'm sure all of our listeners will uh, will hope for that as well. Thank you. And final question. This is 40-Minute Mentor. If you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I think I would have been mentored by Leonardo da Vinci because I think the biggest expansion of human abilities comes when they combine understanding of science technology with understanding of art. And like to think that Whenever anyone finds an artist on themselves, they're reaching the best of their potential. So I think that would be a great mentorship for me. What a great answer. Lovely place to end it. Marcia, thank you for sharing your unique insights, experience and mentorship with our listeners. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I wish you the very best of luck for 2024. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bye. And that is all from us today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it even half as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you're a new listener and haven't left us feedback before, we would really appreciate it if you did. We'd love to hear what you love most about 40 Minute Mentor and how you think we can make it even better. So if you have 30 seconds after this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could head to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a rating and review. You can also leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if we've left any questions unanswered in today's episode, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, then please do let our head of marketing, Hannah, know. Thank you so much again for all your support, and I hope to see you next Wednesday for even more pocket-sized mentorship. Thank you.